Good morning. I'm going to uh, take a moment and tie in what Michael was saying about the importance of being involved in a community. So what's going on in uh, Romans chapter 16? Romans chapter 16 is, is, a, is a unique ending to one of Paul's epistles. He writes a lot of epistles, and the only thing that's even close to it is at the end of Colossians, he mentions a lot of people. Um, Paul had not started the church at Colossae, a, a guy named Epaphroditus had, but he's writing this letter, and he, he greets a number of people, but nothing compares to the list of people he's greeting here at the end of Romans 16. And because of that, because of the uniqueness of how Paul kind of extends Romans with this great list of, of people he greets who are in Rome where he's writing to, um, and who are in, he sends greetings from Corinth, from a bunch of people who are with him, um, because that is, is unique, it provided some challenges early on with this letter as it began to be circulated. You can imagine if you're circulating these letters and people are realizing these are really important documents. Other people other than our church needs to be reading this. Um, as they started circulating them to other churches, you get to this section of um, what <laughs> this people, you know, specific people at specific churches. And, and the question becomes, does this need to be the part that this other church somewhere else is supposed to read? Um, and so as they were copying them, um, some, some things started to happen, and, and one of those things is in your Bibles. If you have a Bible, uh, most of your English versions are going to have a missing verse 24. Um, you'll read through, and it'll just be looking like all the other things, and if you pay really close attention, it'll go 23, <laughs> 25. This is like, what happened to verse 24? Uh, well, let me try to explain what happened to verse 24, because Romans ends so uniquely with this interaction with all these other people. Um, in some of the other copies of Romans that we have, and many of them are, are those that were copied and then circulated around, they have kind of an ending that's more typical of the end of um, a book. May, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And, and it, it finds itself in some of our copies at different places. Um, in some copies, it's at the end of chapter 14, and a lot of copies, it's at the end of chapter 15. Uh, in some copies, it's right here where it's missing in chapter 16, verse 24. Some places have it in multiples of those places. Um, let me set you at ease. We're not missing part of the gospel. We're not missing part of this. We, just, we have too many. We just don't know where this thing goes. And, and we can kind of see what they were trying to do. They're trying to decide, can we end it with something else? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Without having to get into all of these names and the specifics that seem to be local for uh, Paul. Um, and, and so just ha having understanding that, I, I don't want you to be troubled when you go, there's no 24. Um, there's a reason for no 24, um, and there's a, a good explanation for it, and we're not missing a verse. We, we haven't lost any of the Bible. If anything, our, our problem isn't that we have you know, 95%. The problem is we have 105%, and we're trying to figure out what's the 100, and where, where does this piece go? And so that's really what's going on with that, that missing verse. Um, I also want to review um, specifically how we're approaching this, this book and how we're approaching it is really reading it well as an epistle. Um, Romans is written um, as a letter, probably read in front of the church by this woman named Phoebe, who seems to be delivering the letter. We're going to find in what we look at today, there's a guy named Tertius, 
um, who was Paul's amanuensis. He was the secretary taking, taking it down. He was writing it all out. Um, they handed the letter to Phoebe. She went to the churches in Rome. She, she likely was the one who read the, the letter. And because it was read, it has more the characteristics of a sermon. And so I've kind of analyzed it, and we've gone through this more like a sermon than a letter. Um, that leads me to, to talk about our time with Michelle Knight coming up here in August, and particularly um, on Saturday, August 21st. I really would encourage you to take advantage of her being here. What she's going to do on that... Saturday on the 21st, um, she's going to talk on how to read one of the most difficult sections of the Bible to read. How do you read historical narrative? How do you read the, the Old Testament parts of the Bible um, that tell the story w- without just um, reverting to free association? And this can mean any old thing. Um, this is one of the sections of Scripture, not just the book of Judges, which she's a specialist in, um, but this section of Scripture with the narrative literature is one of the places that false teaching really emerges because you can look at a story and you can kind of make it mean anything you want if you pull different pieces out of it. And so the question is, how do we read this and read this well in the way that God intended for us to read? And she is going to give us some great um, some great guidelines that are going to be, I really think, foundational for you and just your Bible reading, not just foundational for judges, uh, but foundational for how we read the Bible. So I would really encourage you to be a part of that. Jumping back into Romans, which is, um, grows out of a story, and we see a lot of the story here, it, it is a letter. And um, let me just kind of review what Paul's been doing in Romans 16. Once he gets here to Romans 16, um, he starts to address people. Um, and the first group of people that he addresses is going to be the people that he knows in Rome. And what he does, he's writing from Corinth. He's on his way to Rome, but he's got to make a trip to Jerusalem first to deliver um, some offerings. Um, what he is going to do is, from Corinth, write this letter. Um, you're going to see he's got an amanuensis, a secretary who writes it down. It's going to be delivered by this woman named Phoebe. And and Phoebe's going to deliver the letter, um, and he greets people that he knows there. He, he basically, in the letter, says, listen, I'm going to be there pretty soon. I need you guys to get together on this issue of the gospel and, and greet these people that I know. We've, we've looked at that. Um, then he takes this section that I went through very quickly last week, I'm going to look at again, where he basically says, now there are some troublemakers. <laughs> There's some false teachers. I don't want to greet them. I want to tell you stay away from them. Um, then he's going to um, talk about the people who are with him in Corinth and say, my friends here are sending you guys greetings. And then he's going to end finally with a doxology. Okay, So uh, we've already looked at all of these people who were a part of Paul's life at different times who are in Rome now that he's writing. Um, I want to address these false teachers because he gives a warning about them. And I think in our day and age, it's important for me not to blow past this. Um, he, he says, keep your distance from false teachers and divisive people. People who are making up their own truth to manipulate people and create power centers for themselves. Um, and people who are just being divisive in the way they do their ministry. Uh, they, may, they may actually do good things, but if they're divisive in the way they do it, Paul's going to tell you to stay away from them. Here's what he says. 
I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out, literally mark, mark out those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your, your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Um, folks, there's bad characters out there. <laughs> there's some bad characters out there who are wanting to, to divide. And some, and some of them, that's their only motivation is just to divide. They're wanting to divide the church. And, and it's become so successful um, we used to be dividing over, over doctrinal issues, and many of the doctrinal issues we probably shouldn't be dividing over. Some doctrinal issues are worth standing for. But it's gotten so bad that, that we are now dividing over such petty issues. Um, and, and folks, we've got to remember that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that unifies us. We can have a lot of different opinions on a lot of different things. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is the thing that is central to the message that we are proclaiming. And it is what unites people from a lot of diverse backgrounds and diverse perspectives. And and there's a lot of freedom in terms of how we do ministry. Um, The functions are never going to change. We're always going to worship. We're always going to teach God's word. We're always going to provide opportunities for fellowship, and we're going to do evangelism locally and globally. The functions of the church are never going to change. The forms in which we deliver them, that can change. But we are never going to dilute or, or walk away from the functions of the church because the functions of the church are all about what we have been commissioned to do. And there are people out there who are teaching false things. And folks, just because someone says something is true enough times doesn't make it true. And that is, that is such a sign of our age. Somebody can say something, and if they just keep saying it, you have to eventually say, well, maybe that's true. Folks, there is real truth. It's found in God's Word. That's why how we handle God's Word is so important. Um, But these false teachers are trying to divide the church, and they're trying to take the church into unbiblical places. And I think that's that's kind of two different things. I think the church is sliding into some very unbiblical, unsupportable positions. But I also think the church is being divided over things that don't matter. What matters is um, God loves us enough to send his son And his son laid down his life for us, and we've been commissioned to share that message and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what unifies us. Here's some marks of these false teachers that Paul puts out there. They're divisive. Um, Satan loves to divide and destroy. Um, They're teaching false, unbiblical doctrine. Um, that's why we are always, we're going to be teaching God's word. They, these guys are self-centered. They're not focused on Christ. They're focused on themselves and, and what will benefit them. They're power hungry. They're often money hungry, but it's all about their perspective. They're usually very persuasive to gullible people. 
Um, but they're going to be judged by God. Um, and and the, the passage ends this way. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Uh, we need to remember it's God's battle to take care of them. What we need to do is make sure we're pursuing the truth. We're anchored in the truth. We know how to handle our Bibles. We know to ha- how to handle our Bibles well enough that when somebody's not handling their Bible well, you're able to go, that's not being done well. <laughs> that's, that's not what this passage really says. And, and I, I encourage you, this happens to me from time to time when I'll be listening to stuff. And I mean, sometimes I go on a lookout and start flipping through the channels just to see what kind of crazy I can find. Um, you can do that. It's easy to find. Um, but, but there are other times when I just I realize what's being said there is not what's being said in the text. And instead of getting frustrated with them, I, I encourage you practice understanding what's really being said in the text. Um, and, and remember, it's God's job to, to fix that. And he's going to. He, he came as our redeemer. He's coming back as the judge. He's going to set it all straight. Um, and, and that's going to bring peace to us. John Stott says this really interestingly. It may seem strange that in this context, Paul refers to the God of peace. Um, since enjoying peace and crushing Satan do not sound altogether compatible with each other. But God's peace allow no, allows no appeasement of the devil. It is only through the destruction of evil that p- true peace can be attained. Um, we don't need to put up with just everything. <laughs> Because God's going to judge it. But what we need to do is speak the truth in love because there is truth, folks. There is truth. It's not just everybody living out their own truth. You can't just live out your own truth. Um, Our family happens to like the Olympics. I don't know if you like the Olympics. Our family happens to like the Olympics. One of the things I like about it is there are winners. And last night, the truth was the American men won the four by 100 medley. We won it. And I was screaming in our bed, bath, in our living room. I was screaming as we won it. And you know what I liked about winning? It wasn't, oh, well, you know, he tried hard, um, got his personal best. No, there was a winner. There was an, an objective truth of who went fastest. And, and, and you can't just go, Ah, uh, well, you know, we feel like, you know, because of this, you know, maybe, maybe the Japanese should have won. Uh, no. <laughs> the, some of the world is just so clear. There's, there's winners and there's losers. There's right and there's wrong. There's truth, folks. There is truth. There is absolute truth. And because of that, we need to understand that the guide for absolute truth is Scripture. And I've belabored this point a lot, and I've even provided three resources that I usually try to vary. You know, some of them are practical, some of them are deep. Look at this. All three of these are on false teaching. Every one of them. (laughs) You know why? Because false teaching is so prominent out there, and it is so subtle and so sneaky. And we need to make sure that we are um, poised to be people who understand the truth of God, and we are willing to fight for the gospel, not fight for a lot of other things, but we'll fight for the gospel. And we'll live at peace with other people about some other negotiable issues. We can let people have their own positions about that. I don't have to hold their position. 
But the gospel is going to unify us as a church. And as we, as we stand for the truth, I want to remind you as well, speak the truth in love. Jesus Christ was the embodiment of truth and grace. And that's who we're, we're trying to be disciples of. We're pr- trying to be disciples of a person who was completely true, but completely gracious. Um, we have to stand for the truth. There is truth. False doctrine is out there. Stand for the truth and do it with love and with grace. Paul's going to move on, and after talking about the people he knows in Rome and the people he wants to warn them about, he's going to say, and here's some friends of mine who were with me, these people who, um, who are his partners in ministry there. And, and he's working hard to maintain these partnerships. And you, you've already seen it last week when we talked about the people who were in Rome. A lot of them had done ministry with him before. Um, on Paul's missionary journeys, this is just one map of, of the second missionary journey. But you can see on the map that Paul picks up people all over the place. He starts a ministry. It's just he and Silas. Um, then in Lystra, he's going to pick up Timothy. He's going to keep going. In, in uh, Troas, he's going to pick up Luke. In Philippi, he's going to pick up Epaphroditus. Um, in Thessalonica, he's going to pick up Aristarchus and Secundus. In Berea, um, Sopater. Um, he's going to continue to travel over. And in Ephesus, he's going to pick up Tychicus and Trophimus. All these people are part of his team. These are people who travel with him. And Paul's not out there alone. I mean, you kind of get this idea as he starts these letters. Paul, but even some of them, Paul and Timothy, he'll start. Um, but he's got a lot of people on his team, and he's sending these greetings from his partners in Corinth. He starts with Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and uh, Sosipater, my kinsman. When we know Timothy, he has two books written about him. He is Paul's uh, probably clearest protege in ministry. You're, you're probably familiar with Timothy. Paul uh, leaves Timothy in strategic places. Paul ends up being kind of long time the pastor at the church in Ephesus. Uh, but there's some other people here you may not be familiar with. We don't know if this Lucius is perhaps Luke, who writes Luke and Acts. I don't think so. Um, it's a possibility, but we do know something about these other two guys. Jason. Um, Jason is a guy from Thessalonica. Here's what we read in the book of Acts about this encounter um, in Thessalonica. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men and rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to, to the crowd. And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have, have come here also, and, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken some money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Jason's part of his group in Thessalonica. He looks like he's a wealthy enough man to have received them into his home. And Paul has quite an entourage at this point. Um, but Jason is, is now traveling with Paul. He's with him in Corinth and has probably traveled with him from Thessalonica. Uh, Jason seems to be a wealthy homeowner who's a supporter of Paul and apparently has at least some of the resources to, to pay the bond money to get them out of jail. Uh, they eventually have to escape it overnight. 
So Jason is a, is a minister with Paul and has gone through some tough times with him. Um, there's another guy, um, Sopater. He, he's all, also called Sosipater. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for his disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through these regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pharis, accompanied him, and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, who we're going to meet in a minute, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. So these are all people part of his team, and so these guys are with him. Um, they, they are traveling with him. We don't really know much about Sopater, except that he's, he's with him. He's part of the team. Don't know what his role was, um, but he is a part of the team. Here's an interesting one. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. When he says he wrote the letter, he simply means he's the secretary. The, the ancient term for that is he's the amanuensis. He's the one who is, is, is taking down the dictation. Um, his name means third. That's going to come up in just a minute. But he basically just says, hey, you know, I'm writing this out. I, I greet you too. Uh, and he lets them know because he wants to send his personal connection because they're, they're all part of this family. Many of them have never met, but they are united because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He continues, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. They're in Gaius's house. He's a large, wealthy landowner. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. And we could talk about a couple of these guys. Gaius of Corinth um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that not, no one, uh, not many of you would say they were baptized by my name. He, he's obviously a convert from Corinth. He's been baptized by Paul, and he's got a house big enough to host them. Uh, so he's a part of that. We also know a little bit about this Erastus guy. Um, Erastus is with Paul and a lot of his ministry. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia at Ephesus a while longer. So he, he sends Timothy and Erastus as kind of a team, go ahead. They're, they're an advanced team that, that's going to go ahead and take care of some things at the church. Uh, we also know from Acts that uh, he's part of the, uh, another ministry team at Corinth, Greek Prisca and Aquila, and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pertus and Linus and Claudius and all the, uh, Claudia and all the brothers. Um, Paul, at the very end of his life, is, is mentioning this Erastus guy. Erastus is um, from Corinth. He seems to be a man of means. He seems to be a man who can get things done in Corinth. And there's an interesting um, discovery that was made in Corinth. In 1929, they were doing some archaeological work, kind of the big archaeological uh, era is from about 1850 to 1918, basically after World War I a lot of archaeological work gets shut down. Um, a little bit lasts after that. In 1929, um, a paved stone was found in Corinth. And here's a picture of it. Um, and basically what it says is, Erastus, the city manager. <laughs> um, this is the guy we're talking about. Um, there is historical evidence 
that this guy lived. He's a real guy, and, and his position is even affirmed in Scripture. People date this from about 50 AD, which would have been exactly the time that Erastus would have lived there. Um, one thing, it wasn't worth me mentioning much. Um, Tertius means third. Quartus means fourth. They may have been brothers. I, I wouldn't think so, but one's the third, one's the fourth. That you just, it's just interesting that you do have a third and a fourth in there. Maybe they're brothers. I don't know. So what Paul has done so far here is he has said, hey, I want to greet all the people I know in Rome. Um, I want to tell you to be aware of false, doctor, false doctrine and false teachers. All the people around me, they send their greetings as well. And, and it's all about this community. And he has built this community, and he's, he spent all 16 chapters trying to wrap this community around the gospel. And next week, I'm going to go back and review the whole book of just kind of, I've been writing down, here are the important things we need to take away from a study of Romans. Um, but Paul spends 16 chapters building a community to unite them around the gospel. They had been divided for various reasons. Now he's uniting them, but he's going to end in the right place. He's going to end with being a person who gives glory to God. Um, this doxology at the end is, is um, it's kind of the thing you're looking for at the end of one of these books. But this one is different than what we normally find the missing verse 24. Uh, May the grace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. It's not like that. This one is a little bit different. Um, This one is, um, it's a doxology that's a little bit more full. Um, It's not just a blessing at the end. Um, Frank Thielman says this, Doxologies are expressions of praise to God that describe his glory, honor, or might, and their origins probably lay in the temple worship of Israel. At the end of the worship service in Israel, They often read one of these psalms that has a doxology that just draws your attention to how great God is. Um, I'll give you the content of it from two quotes by by Thomas Schreiner before we actually look at the the actual words of it, and we're going to dig deep. Paul prays that God will receive the glory for the gospel that has now been revealed. The gospel has both been hidden and prophesied in the Old Testament, But the age of fulfillment has come so that the mystery that was shrouded in the past and prophesied is now publicly declared as being fulfilled. The gospel centers on Jesus the Messiah, for he fulfills the saving promises of the Old Testament. And these promises are being realized in the inclusion of all nations into the people of God. God is able to strengthen us. Um, That's what he's going to say. God's able to strengthen us. Believers are empowered by God to flourish in life and ministry. God's able to strengthen us. We can, we can flourish in all this that God has given us to do. This unity of the gospel and then living it out among our community and living it out in the midst of the world, God is the one who strengthens us to do that. Listen to how he begins this thing. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ago in ages past. Um, The idea of this is we're going to really break it down. First of all, God's the one who's able to do something for us. He strengthens us. 
Um, this ability of God, God is able, it's, it's a f- common New Testament word. Um, the, the Greek word is dunamis, and, and some people wrongly say that this dunamis is, is dynamic um, power. Um, it's dy- like dynamite power. That's not accurate. This power is transformative power. Dynamite's not invented for another thousand years, by the way. This, this is transformative power. God has the ability to transform us from weak and unstable to strong and stable. God, God is the one who's able to transform us. And what he actually says is God is able to strengthen us. This idea of strengthen um, carries with it the idea of having a good, solid foundation, what was weak is strong. What was wobbly is stable. What was soft is firm. God, God does that. God is the one who's able to do it. We can't strengthen ourselves, but God can as we cooperate with the work of his word ministered to us through the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit applies that to our life and makes us want to apply it to our life. God is able to transform us into people who who were weak but are now strong, who were wobbly, who are now stable, who were soft, who are now firm. And he does that through this central message of Jesus Christ to the one who's able, who's got this transformative power and can set your feet firm on the ground in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ago and ages past. Uh, Paul calls this good news, my gospel, not because he authored it, but because he owns it. It's my, this, is, this is my gospel. Uh, not I made it up, but it has become the consuming passion of my life. The gospel belongs to him because his, he stakes his own soul upon it. And this is the gospel that, that the whole Old Testament is ramping up to. Now, it doesn't get there always immediately and clearly, but it's always moving toward this. God has revealed his plan for the Gentiles. God, God previewed in the Old Testament, and I usually talk about it in prophecies and pictures and predictions, and has now revealed in the New Testament the message of justification by faith for all people. Here's what he says. It's in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ago, long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. Um, Boy, a lot of words here we're going to have to deal with. First of all, uh, this is revealed. Um, The word here is apocalypsis. It's apocalyptic. It's a word you may have heard of. Apocalyptic means uh, dramatic revelation. It's usually in-time events. But, but it is dramatic in how it is revealed, sometimes in dramatic forms, dramatic stories. Sometimes what is revealed, once it's revealed, it's dramatic. Um, it's, it's how it's revealed and what is revealed is dramatic. This, this revelation um, is a very dramatic, it's, it's almost shocking in how it's revealed. And, and it's, it's shocking in how it hits you. Oh my gosh, look how it all comes together in Jesus. You read the Old Testament, and you're getting all these predictions, but the New Testament reveals it in this way that it used to go, oh, that's all about Jesus. Um, and it's, it's made known. Um, this doesn't focus on the, the dramatic nature, but it, it, it's, it's what is made known. It is a, a revelation. It's clearly revealed. It's, it's not hidden anymore. 
Once we get to the New Testament, it's clearly, look, this is Jesus. Um, now, that this is Jesus is so clear that it's shocking. Um, and there's another word for it, being made known, which means it's made known. You can't figure it out. You don't discover it. Um, it's, it's made known because somebody has to make it known to you because it was a mystery. We, we, this word mystery is really common in Paul. I've talked about this word a lot, mysterion. It's a, it's a mystery. And the mystery isn't something God's trying to hide from us. It's something that was hidden that is now revealed. It's a mystery in that it's now revealed. And God has revealed to us, and, and it, it all centers on Christ. God has revealed to us that Christ is the culmination of all of this stuff. Christ is the culmination. And very often with Paul, because of his focus on ministry to the Gentiles, Christ is the culmination of all of this ministry to the Gentiles that allows Gentiles to have a relationship with God. This plan has been in keeping with the revelation of the mysteries hidden long ago in ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience from faith. It's not new. It's just more clear because we get pictures of it even back in Genesis, Genesis 12. Um, In Genesis 12... God says this to Abraham, the first Jewish guy. And Yahweh said to Abraham, go out from your land and from your relatives and from your house of your father to the land I will show you and I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you and I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And all families of the earth will be blessed in you. There's even a little seed of it there of all the families of the earth. This isn't just blessings for Jews. These blessings are going to result through how I bless you, blessing the whole world. And as the thing gets revealed and the mystery is made more and more clear, it's through Jesus Christ. God has revealed all of this. And so therefore, God is worthy. The wisdom of God's plan compels us to praise him forever. So here's his conclusion to it. To the only wise God... Be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. He concludes. (laughs) He's finally here at the end, and he goes, this whole gospel thing that I presented to you, starting off back in chapter 1 where I've told you I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and then I told you you need God's righteousness and showed how everybody's equally sinners, but through faith, like Abraham had, chapter 4, that provides justification and forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation, um, through faith, we can be brought back into relationship with God. And not only that, we can be conformed to his image as we allow the Holy Spirit to transform us. And you can count on God to be true to his promises, chapter 9 to 11. And you need to live this out personally in your relationship with God and proving his will and using his um, gifts that he's given you within the church and loving people around you and submitting to the government and getting along with people you disagree with. Just talked myself through Romans. <laughs> All of that is God's wise plan. And he gets glory forever because of it. To the only wise God, he's the only one who could figure this out. To him be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Tom Schreiner says the dominant theme in this doxology is the ascription of glory to God. This is fitting since the central theme of Romans is that God has arranged history so that he will receive honor, praise, and thanksgiving. Um, Paul's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is God's plan to get righteousness, to 
all people. So he gives glory to God for that. Um, John Stott says, It is fair to say that the major themes of Paul's letters are encapsulated in this doxology. The power of God to save and to establish. The gospel and the mystery, once hidden and now revealed, which are Christ crucified and risen. The Christ-centered witness of the Old Testament scripture. The commission of God to make the gospel news universally known. The summons to all the nations to respond with the obedience of faith and the saving wisdom of God to whom all glory is due forever. That's what he's been talking about this whole book. Frank Thielman says it this way, In light of the centrality of Jesus Christ to the gospel, God had recently revealed... By the way, the the sentence is really a wild sentence. Um, Thielman says, "The, The grammatical ambiguity that Paul's difficult syntax introduced was probably an ambiguity he was happy not to clarify. Um... I think I can clarify this in that what Paul does kind of here, he's, he, he gets to the end and he just says, God's glory to him, be it forever. Oh, everybody, he's wise, yes. That's, that's kind of how the sentence feels when you read it in Greek. Um, he is excited to get to the end, but he's excited because God pulls all of this together. So let me pull chapter 16 together for you and say a couple of things. Team counts. Are you on the team? You doing your part on the team? Team counts. Paul had a team in Rome. Paul had a team with him in Corinth. Paul had a team with him all over the place. Team counts. Truth matters. Real truth, God's truth, objective truth in the word of God. And just because somebody can say it repeatedly does not make it true. It's true when God says it's true. And finally, worship is crucial in this. this. This whole thing should drive us to worship. So some next steps, real clearly. Know the gospel well, folks. Know the gospel well, because it's what unifies us. It's the truth. Share the gospel clearly. We'll talk more about that next week. Know it well enough that you can share it clearly. More and more people need to know what the gospel really says, because, back to our other point, Everybody's making up their own truth out there. Everybody's making up their own truth and saying, you can believe whatever you want. Whatever, whatever your truth is, just live by that. Don't hurt anybody else. Everybody's making up their own truth. And then because God is the one who's the source of this truth and the source of our redemption, praise him enthusiastically. Enthusiastically. 